Turn your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. I don't know how many times I've had this privilege of preaching. I've, I've, I've preached in rooms full of sinners. I've preached in rooms full of saints. In rooms like this, full of both. And God has graciously given me this twofold desire and prayer nearly every time. And that is that God would truly be exalted and that the people hearing me preach would be rightly affected. That they would be rightly affected. And I'm telling you, the, the insufficiency... And I know I'm not the only one. I know Ryan feels this and Dustin feels this and everybody that preaches feels this. But the insufficiency I feel in my inability to affect your heart. I can study all week long. I can preach hard. Preach my heart out. And I can't affect your heart. Only God can affect your heart. I want your heart to be affected because it's in that way that God is most exalted. If you're wondering why I'm wearing a suit, i got to preach a funeral this afternoon of one of my former church members who heard me preach hundreds of times. This stuff matters. It matters. That there are eternal consequences every time we open up God's word. And I can't affect your heart. God told Ezekiel, can these bones live? And the answer is, you know, Lord. Please. Whether you're in Christ or don't know him at all, please don't leave here without your heart being affected. And so please, do this with me right now. Let, let's pray. Let's go to, to the Lord together and let's pray that this would happen. That God would be exalted and you and me and everybody that's hearing this, even recorded later on, everybody that hears this would be rightly affected, which is what this text is about today, by the way. Let's pray. God, you are Lord of heaven and earth. You own it all. You made it all. You invented it all. You rule it all. And you turn the hearts of a king, even the most ruthless dictator in North Korea, you, you turn his heart like a river, like water in your hand. You are worthy to be feared, and you're worthy to be loved, and you're worried, worthy to be served. And we're helpless to do any of those things if you don't act. God, I, I pray that you would circumcise hearts here today. That your word would be powerful by the working of your spirit. I pray the wind would blow. Pray the wind would blow. That you would do eternal things to save your people and to glorify your name. Lord, come not in word alone, but in power. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for how you have affected our hearts. Lord, don't, don't leave us unaffected here today. Change our hearts today. Save souls here today. Bear fruit in your church. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And before we read 
the passage, I want you to just, just look at how it starts. In verse 12, it says, And now, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And, and for this statement to make the most sense, it's going to help you to kind of locate where we are in, in the book of Deuteronomy and in, in where we are in the history of Israel at this moment. The, one, the moment he's saying, and now, Israel, this is what God requires of you. So we got Moses preaching. This is what's going on here. Moses is preaching to the second generation of Israel after their 40 years in the wilderness. And he's, and he's preaching. He's teaching and preaching the law, the covenant, while he's reminding them of their history and their dealings with God. And you can, you can see Deuteronomy as, as three different sermons. And, and there's two songs by Moses. The first four chapters were mostly uh, a sermon by Moses where he kind of recounted or went through the history of Israel those 40 years in the wilderness. And now we're early in the second sermon, and it's the longest one. It's chapter 5 all the way to chapter 26. And Moses, is what he's doing is he's unfolding the stipulations of the covenant that has just been renewed with them. And there's a third sermon towards the end that talks about the covenant blessings and the covenant curses and this final exhortation before they cross over the Jordan and into the promised land. And this is all meant to instruct them and to motivate them. To motivate them to absolute, total, wholehearted devotion to Yahweh their God as they go into the land. So we turn, turn to chapter 4 real quick, and I just want you to see the, the flow leading up to this passage. Notice in chapter 4, the first words, they are the same words, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you. And so Moses uh, is bringing that first sermon to a close before he introduces the next subject, which is the law of God, and here he's calling for a response. He's calling for a response, and he's urging obedience. You can see that in that subtitle there. If you got the ESV, it says, Moses commands obedience. And then look further down towards the end of chapter 4, verse 44. There's a subtitle there. It says, Introduction to the Law. Introduction to the Law. So there's the preface for this next section. The next section on the law. So what would you think would come next? Chapter 5, the Ten Commandments. So, so this is where he starts in chapter 5. He lays out the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, but then this sermon, this discourse runs for another 21 chapters. So if he starts with an outline with the Ten Commandments, what do you think comes in chapter 6? What do you think starts? Well, if you, if you love expositional preaching you should answer that there's going to be an exposition of the Ten Commandments. And that's what Moses is doing. One by one, Moses is going to elaborate on, and he's going to make application of different uh, specific principles and statutes that are related to each of the Ten Commandments. So if that's true, then after chapter 5, the intro, the outline of the Ten Commandments, what should come next? An elaboration of commandment number one. And so look at that in, in chapter 6. The, the ESV has a headline there that says, The Greatest Commandment. And so chapter 6, he starts this elaboration on the first commandment. And how does he start? He starts not with that negative version of the commandment, you should have no other gods before me, but with that famous positive exhortation of the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He says, you, man, you need to teach this to your children. And then later on, we'll see at the end of chapter 11, the book ends 
of this section, he says the same thing again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Teach these things to your children. So all through this section, chapter 6 through chapter 11, this is what Moses is doing. He's preaching to them. He's urging them. He's trying to motivate them into this wholehearted devotion to Yahweh their God. Love the Lord with all your heart. That's the first commandment. This is what he's trying to get them to do. He's trying to stir them up. Now, how does he do it? How does he stir them up? He does it by reminding them about who God is, reminding them about what God has done, reminding them about all these dealings that he's had, that they've had with God. Just, just follow the flow here in chapter, chapter 6. He starts with that commandment, love the Lord God, your God. And he reminds them of the good land that God has promised them. Reminding them of the good that God has already accomplished for them. Reminding them of the good of these commandments. They are for their good. He says, remember the promised land. It's a good land. Don't forget God when you get there. He says, remember your redemption. How God with a mighty hand rescued you, redeemed you out of Egypt to fulfill his promises to your fathers. And then in chapter 7, he commands them to absolutely destroy everybody else in the land. He says you need to devote them to complete destruction. Show them no mercy. And he reminds them of the destruction of these nations are going to be by his will, by God's will, and by God's power. The same power, he reminds them, that destroyed Pharaoh. And his armies. And it's against that backdrop, that background of God's righteous wrath against wicked people, he reminds them that they are his chosen people. But not because you're so awesome. Not because of your righteousness, but because of me, God says, because of my steadfast love and faithfulness and then he goes on in chapter 11 to remind them of that faithfulness how he was faithful to them in the wilderness and again he reminds them of the promised land that's coming up it's a good land don't forget God when you get there remember it's by God's power it's by God's goodness that you're going to make it into the land not your own and if you forget God and start acting like the nations you're going to perish like the nations and then last week, chapter 9, Ron preached this section where Moses makes it very clear that they are not getting the land because of their own righteousness. It's, it's because God is judging the wickedness of the land, and it's because God is faithful to fulfill the promises he made to their fathers. And it, this is just simply God demonstrating his mercy and his grace to them. And just in case that doesn't sink in, he reminds them of all their rebellion and all their sin. You just like the nations. You're an idol, you're idol worshipers too. He reminds them of all the sin and rebellion that they've had in the wilderness, especially the golden calf. And he said, they worship idols out of sheer ignorance, the nations do. But you've seen God. You, you've seen God's power. You've heard God's voice. And yet you bow down to a little golden calf. The only reason you're still here. The only reason God has renewed his covenant with you. The only reason you're still going to receive the promised land. Is because God mercifully turned away from his wrath. When I pleaded for your pardon. That's it. And now... Moses says, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? Now I want you to catch what Moses is doing. He's calling them to respond. He's showing them the right response to God. In light of God's revelation of himself and in light of God's dealings with them and mercy 
and grace. How is it that you're supposed to respond to God's revelation of himself? How are you supposed to respond to his power and to his sovereignty? How are you supposed to respond to God's promises and his faithfulness that he proves himself to be faithful to fulfill those things? How are you supposed to respond to that? How are you supposed to respond to his gracious election of you while he destroys the nations? How are you supposed to respond to that mercy? How are you supposed to respond to that grace? In light of your persistent, stubborn sin. How are you supposed to respond to all this? And God says, I'll tell you how. Right here. Five verbs and one stunning command. Read along with me in verses 12 through 22. Moses says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. By his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your father went down, your fathers went down into Egypt, 70 persons, and now. The Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Right before this, Moses says in verse 10, the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. God is mercifully bringing you into the land despite the wrath you deserve. And now, what does the Lord your God require? And Moses gives a simple summary of the right response how should you respond he gives you five verbs fear the lord walk in all god's ways love the lord your god serve the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and keep his commandments i want you to notice that all five of those verbs support the main idea of the first commandment You shall have no other gods beside Yahweh. Him you shall fear. Him you shall love. Him you shall serve. No one else. All five of these verbs point to total allegiance, total devotion to Yahweh, your God. But I also want you to notice that God is commanding an inward response. He's commanding an inward response with obvious outward expressions. He's commanding your emotions. He says, do this, fear me. Fear the Lord. He says, love me. Love the Lord. He's commanding this inward response that's supposed to manifest itself. How? By doing what? Walking in his ways, serving him, and keeping his commandments. And so here's the question. In 40 years of Israel's history, have they ever done this? 
Look at the end of verse 16. Be no longer stubborn. <laughs> That's the description. That's the description of so far their track record. Stiff necked. Literally, hard neck. Think of it like an animal that refuses to obey its master. Like, like riding a horse or plowing a mule. You pull the reins to the left and the animal just stiffens his neck. He will not turn. He's not going left. I will not let this man rule over me. Or like a child, when you call out to a child and say, hey, come here. And they don't even turn their head to acknowledge it. They just keep playing. Stiff neck. I'm not even going to acknowledge that voice. Stubborn. Stiff neck. Obstinate people. Is the problem in the neck? The problem's not with the neck. The problem's not even with the ears. I hear you. Not listening, though. Where's the problem? The problem's in the heart. The real problem is an uncircumcised heart. And so what's the remedy? How in the world are these stubborn, stiff-necked people finally going to start fearing God and loving Him in order to serve Him and obey Him? They need to change their heart. And so God gives this, to me anyway, this absolutely stunning command in verse 16 that I'm going to argue is the most important revelation in this paragraph. He says, circumcise your heart. It's a command. Literally, verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. I think this is one of the most profound statements thus far in redemptive history. And the reason I think that is, is, is because of how it pulls together so many theological ideas and puts them in this shocking imagery. And I want you to see three things here that I think God is communicating in this image, this statement, this command to circumcise your heart. Thought number one is this. Your heart can have a spiritual foreskin. Now, I didn't write this. Did you see it right there in verse 16? Circumcise Therefore, the foreskin of your heart. That word translated foreskin, it actually means foreskin. You, you see what this means? This means that you can have a heart that will not allow spiritual truth to sink in and take root. In other words, there's something preventing there's something preventing divine realities from affecting your heart. The Bible talks about this in a lots of ways. Uh, Paul, my, one of my favorite sections of the Bible, Paul says the unbelieving heart is veiled and blinded. When Paul talks about the unbelieving Jews, he says to this day, whenever they read Moses like I'm doing now. There's a veil that lies over their heart. In, in other words, the light of God's Word is just not getting through to the heart because it's veiled. And then he goes on to describe all of humanity that unbelieves, born this way even. That the little g-god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It just The gospel just won't get in. It won't shine through. Why? Because it's veiled. Jesus says the unbelieving heart is like the ground. It's hard and impenetrable and it's unfruitful. You remember the parable of the sower? Same principle. The seed of God's 
word falls on a hard heart and the birds just snatch it away or the sun shines on it and it burns it when this plant finally springs up, but it just dies. Why? Because there's no root. It just, just, can't, it just can't get in. Now, I want you to get this. I want you to uh, let this sink in. I'm going to give you a one-word description of the uncircumcised heart. This is it. Unaffected. Unaffected. You can hear. Man, I, I, I lived 40 years like this. There's some of you in here right now like this. You can hear the most glorious truths about God and remain unaffected. You can hear the most terrifying realities about God's eternal judgment and the lake of fire that's coming upon you and you can sit right there and remain unaffected. Unaffected. Your heart has a spiritual foreskin and God is commanding you to cut it off. Circumcise your heart. second thing he's showing us here is that God has always judged the heart. The, the Pharisees, remember how they thought of the law, kind of like the rest of humanity? As long as I ain't killed nobody, I'm good with God. M- no, no, right here, Moses, from Moses, we're, we're seeing the law has always been spiritual. It's always been spiritual. And God has always judged the heart. Why did God judge the world when he destroyed it with a flood back in Noah's day? Why? Moses tells us, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth. Well, I can see that. I just got to turn on the news. I can see that. But But he goes on and says, and that every intention of the thoughts Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And he destroyed them. He saw, yeah, he saw the wicked acts of mankind, but the, the real problem was deep, deep, deep down in the heart. And I want you to notice the implications for law-keeping. External obedience is not enough. I ain't killed nobody is not enough. And also that true obedience cannot be faked. True obedience cannot be faked with God. This is why God absolutely hates hypocrites. He sees their heart and he knows they're faking. They're all good out here. But in here... Every intention of the thoughts of their heart is on evil continually. The third thing you see here in this command is that God's promises have always been for the circumcised in heart. Always. Look where we're at. We're in Deuteronomy. We barely got this far in Scripture. You've got to see this. Note again where we are in redemptive history. Israel's been redeemed out of Egypt. The first generation has died under God's judgment because of their rebellion and unbelief. Now they're standing on the doorstep of the promised land. Moses has just reminded them of God's renewed covenant and he's reminded them of the covenant or the promises God made with Abraham. Remember the promises? Remember the promises to Abraham and his seed? What was the mark of those promises? The mark that you were a recipient of the promises to Abraham was what? Circumcision. And here Moses is, he's preaching to hundreds of thousands of Israelites, hundreds of thousands of the sons of Abraham. And in the next book, Joshua, we're going to see that they're all going to cross the Jordan. And receive the promises of Abraham. They're going to take possession of the land. Now, how many of them were circumcised? Would it surprise you 
that none of them were circumcised except Joshua and Caleb? And if you don't believe me, go read Joshua 5. Not now, later. So there's two astounding things about this command in Deuteronomy 10 as it relates to the promises that God made to Abraham. Number one is the Israelites who actually took possession of the promised land were not circumcised. They might as well have been Gentiles. And right here, where God is preparing Israel to take possession of the promised land, God commands them to circumcise their heart, not their flesh. Go, take the land, circumcise your heart. That's what he says. This is foreshadowing what? This is foreshadowing two great eternal spiritual realities that's developed further in God's word. One is that the true sons of Abraham, the recipients of the promise, are those that are circumcised in the heart and have faith in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. New Testament is clear about that. And the second thing is that God is going to judge those that are uncircumcised. In the heart. Now this is, this would be an astounding thing to a Jew. Jeremiah, I, I, don't, I do not know how Orthodox Jewish people today read the Old Testament. I, I don't even know how they understand the things that are in the Bible. I don't know how they would read Jeremiah and not be cut to the heart. Because Jeremiah is preaching this. He's preaching this. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart, O men of Judah. Lest my wrath go forth like fire. And he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. And he starts listing who those people are. He starts listing who those people groups are. Egypt. I can imagine that. Judah. Edom. The sons of Ammon. Moab. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. God is going to judge the uncircumcised in the heart. And this is why Jesus told Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must circumcise your heart. Uncircumcised hearts will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, so, so can you imagine a more important commandment than this? Circumcise your heart. It's right here. This is what the Lord requires of you. This is how you're going to fear him and love him and serve him. This is how. Circumcise your heart. So the big question is, man, how? How do I circumcise my heart? And before we answer that, I want you to see how Moses is trying to affect their heart. In this sermon, Just, this is why I took you from chapter 4 to, to 10. I want you to see how Moses is trying to affect their heart. Just reminding them about who God is. Reminding them about what God has done for them and promised for them. Yet reminding them about who they are. And how they sinned against God. And I think it can be summarized in three words. God loves This, I think, is how Moses is trying to affect their heart. Three words. God loves you. Now, this is where we have to stop a minute. Because I think we've heard that so many times in our life that we are absolutely numb to it. Maybe your heart has grown dull to that staggering reality. God loves you. I know my heart has grown dull to that staggering reality. So I want you to think about those 
three words again. I want you to emphasize those three words the way they should be emphasized. And I want you to apply that truth the way Moses applied it to these uncircumcised Israelites. God. You know who I'm talking about? God actually loves you of all people. How can that be? Instead of thinking, of course he does. Like, that's, that's what an uncircumcised, of course he does. Of course God loves me. No, 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 you don't understand who God is. You don't understand who you are. God actually loves you. That should knock you off your feet. Right, and I want you to say, I'm not just making this up. I want you to see the flow of, what he, of this argument he's making in verses 14, 15, in 16, in verse 14, he says, God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who owns the heavens and everything in it, the one who actually owns the heaven of heavens and everything in it, the one who owns the earth and everything in it, he made it all, he owns it all, it's all his, yet, verse 15, yet, out of everything he's made, out of everything he's made out of everything he owns God has set his love on you above all peoples you see that out of all his possessions somehow he's determined that you would be his treasured possession He owns universes. Yet he set his love on you of all peoples. God, that's the God half of that three-word phrase. That God actually loves you. You, the one who bows down to puny idols that you make with your hands, even though God has revealed his glory and his goodness to you. you, you God loves you, the one who actually grumbles and complains about every twist and turn in God's providence, every twist and turn, the slightest discomfort. You're grumbling. God loves you, the one who just seems to consistently persist in unbelief, trust in your eyes or trust in your deceitful heart instead of his unshakable promises and his proven faithfulness. You, God, actually loves you. This is what Moses is saying. Therefore, verse 16, circumcise your heart. Don't be stubborn anymore. Man. You see how these truths are supposed to, man, they're supposed to pierce the foreskin of your heart. These things are supposed to have a profound effect on your heart. So now let's go back real quick and look at the five verbs that he's saying. What's the right response? And let's see how this connects to your heart. And let's start with the inward. He's got these two inward requirements to fear and love God. Verse 12, he says, fear the Lord. And he says, love the Lord. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? You need to fear God. You need to love God. I hope you, I hope you will see, and I don't have much time to spend on this, but I hope you will see that these two things are not opposed, but they're actually almost synonymous to fear and love God. Do you fear God? Let's start right there. Do you fear God, the one who owns everything? If you say no, then why not? If you say yes, then why? Why do you fear God? And when do you fear God? And how long does that last? What does it even mean? What does it even mean to fear God? Are we supposed to be afraid of God? I mean, I thought the Bible said fear not. 
You know, you love cast out all fear, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? But wait a minute, doesn't the Bible also say, even command, we see it right here, fear God. Not just the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. Fear God. So which one is it? As a matter of fact, when Israel, this people, when they were terrified of God at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses told them, do not fear. For God has come to test you so that the fear of Him may be in you. What? Do not fear so that you might fear. Okay, what, what does this mean? Now I just want you to realize this is a huge, glorious, uh, fearful topic that we don't have time to explore. But I want to hit three, I want to just boom, 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 highlight three categories for you to understand. One is... No fear. No fear of a holy God. You see, God should be feared because He's God. Period. One of the, one of the best preachers, writers, theologians on the holiness of God is R.C. Sproul. Many times, including his book on the holiness of God, he connects... Fear and holiness. He points out that humanity loves to be scared by ghost stories. We're just terrified of the unknown, but attracted to it. We're terrified of the unknown. We're terrified of that thing that is so far out there, that thing that is so inexplicably different than everything that we know. We're terrified of things from another world, things from another realm. But you know what? That's just ghost stories. That's fiction God's not. And God is far more holy, far more different, far more incomprehensible, mighty, awesome, transcendent, powerful and glory, and every other adjective that you could connect to His holiness than Hollywood could ever imagine. He is worthy to be feared because He's not like anything that we know. And He is above everything that is. And this is something that Moses is trying to press into the, their uncircumcised heart. Look at verse 14. I just said it earlier. Everything belongs to him. Verse 17. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. Great, mighty, awesome. Worthy to be feared. Just think about anything in the universe that could... you that you could be afraid of. God made that. He owns it. It's a toy. It's just a trinket. With, a, with his finger, he makes things like that. And they had seen it. They had seen God's holiness. They had seen his power. They had seen his majesty. They had seen his judgments. Look at verse 21. You've seen these things. Look at This is your God, the one who has done these great and terrifying things. Your eyes. You've seen it. Fear God. Fear the one you've seen. Yet, most of the time, even underneath a pillar of cloud and fire, there was no fear before their eyes. This is the great problem of fallen humanity. There is no fear before their eyes. There, is, is there anybody in here who doesn't fear God right now? I know there is. You don't fear God. You are in the most terrifying place that a person could be. You're in church and you don't fear God. You have been bombarded probably all your life with the truth about a holy and a righteous God and you've been given this clear internal conviction of your own sin and yet you have no fear of God at all. Hear what God commands. Fear the Lord. Circumcise your heart and be no longer stubborn. The second category of fear is a fleeting fear. A fleeting fear 
of a righteous God because God should be feared because he's righteous and we're not. You get that, right? He's righteous, we're not. If you've sinned, you should fear God's judgment. The Bible's clear. Everybody's sinned, and God is going to judge every sin. And the soul that sins shall surely die. And it is right, it is very, very right to fear the judgment of God because it's coming. It's coming. But here's the problem. That fear of God's judgment, though it may come every now and then, it's fleeting. For the uncircumcised heart, Israel is a perfect example. Look at everything they've seen. Look at the power and the judgment that God has revealed. Revealed like no other place maybe other than the days of Noah. All these plagues of Egypt, the death of the firstborn, the pillar of cloud and fire, the splitting of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies, the smoke, the fire, the thunder, the lightning, everything at Mount Sinai. They were afraid of God. Yes. Did it last? No. One minute they're saying this great fire is going to consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord again, we will die. Next thing you know, they're dancing naked around a golden calf. The uncircumcised heart has an incredibly powerful tendency to shake off the fear of God's judgment. It's incredible. It's, just, it's almost like it has a, something prevented from sticking. How many times have you been convicted over sin and yet talked yourself out of it or in due time it just faded? Don't let it happen again. Circumcise your heart. Fear the Lord your God. Which brings me to the right kind of fear. And that is a righteous fear of your awesome, fearful you see, the right kind of fear is produced by actually a removal of the fear of judgment. We want you to get that. If you were perfectly righteous, would you fear the judgment of God? No. If you perfectly walked in His ways, served Him with your whole heart, and kept all of His commandments, would you fear the judgment of God? No. He's a righteous God, and I'm righteous. Or what if God were actually merciful and gracious and he actually forgave you of all your sin? Would you fear the judgment of God? No. You would actually enjoy an intimate relationship with a consuming fire. You would fear him in the right way in which the awesomeness of God is now going to be more perceived and actually more enjoyed than ever before. Because as he says here, this holy God is your God. And you are his treasured possession. Now, like nothing changes in God. He is still as mighty and powerful and holy and transcendent as ever before except you can draw near. You can draw near. You call him Father. This is what he's saying. This is what Moses is saying. Look at everything he's done. The God of gods, the Lord of lords, he's actually set his love on you. Circumcise your heart and fear him rightly. I love the text in Psalm 130 that, that considers the judgment of God. It says, oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who can stand? But with you, here's the good news, with you there is forgiveness so that you might be feared. Oh, man, that's a little different flavor of fear. Don't fear God's judgment. Fear His grace. Trembling at God's grace. That God actually loves me. I want to do whatever pleases Him. I just want you to realize that this fear and love of God are not separate. They're almost the same. As a matter of fact, uh, one way to understand the right fear of God is to understand it as a description of your intensity, of your love towards God. Which is the next internal response. He says, 
love the Lord your God. And what does Moses do here? What does he do to provoke a love for God? What is he using to provoke that in their heart? Election. You know, a doctor nobody wants to talk about? He's stirring their hearts by saying, God's love for you actually existed before you were born. God's steadfast love existed towards you before you were born. See that in verse 15? The Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose you. Their offspring after you, after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. God chose them in Abraham centuries earlier, not because of their own merit. And he is calling to love God because he first loved them. Circumcise your heart. Don't be stubborn. Look at the love of God. I hope you're realizing by now this whole story is just a foreshadowing of the gospel. People in bondage enslaved, unable to save themselves, yet God had already set his love on them. Centuries earlier, God had promised to redeem them out of bondage and bring them into a good land forever. And in the fullness of time now, he did. How? By the death of the firstborn and by the blood of a lamb. And in great love and in great power and in great patience, the slow to anger God brought them all the way to the promised land, not because of their own merit, not because of their own righteousness. As a matter of fact, they sinned all the way. And if it weren't for the grace of God through the intercession of the mediator, they would have been ground to powder like the golden calf that they worshipped. But here they are. Fully aware of who God is. Fully aware of what he's done for them. And they're being reminded one more time through a sermon. And here's the call to respond. You must be born again. You must be born again. Circumcise your heart. You must repent. you got to stop being stubborn. Repent. And you've got to believe. you got to believe God. you got to fear him and love him. You got to remember that in love, God predestined. I love it when the Holy Spirit conspires in these services. I didn't tell Dustin to read Ephesians 1. In love, God predestined us for adoption before the foundation of the world. He said, before He said, let there be light, He had set His love on us above all peoples. And he decreed that despite our sin and rebellion, that we would be holy and blameless before him forever. And how would he accomplish this? Even though we so easily and so often would sin against him. Well, in love, he sent his only begotten son to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice because of our sin. And guess what? In love, the glorious Son of God actually came. He actually came and He suffered things we cannot imagine. Why? Because we sinned. He suffered because we sinned. And there it is. There's the mind-blowing reality. There's that heart-piercing reality that God loves me. The Son of God. Some of y'all have heard me say this a hundred times. I want it to affect your heart like it has me. The Son of God loves me. And He gave Himself up for me. This is supposed to change your heart. This is supposed to cause you to fear God rightly. This is supposed to cause you to love Him dearly when the reality and the gravity of the gospel pierces your dead, hard, calloused, uncircumcised, stubborn, stiff-necked heart. Everything changes. When the veil is ripped away, And what comes out of that? Obedience. Walk in His ways. 
Obedience from the heart. And I have no time to spend on those three points. But that's okay because that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. Walk in all his ways. Imitate him. He loved the sojourner. You love the sojourner. He's merciful and gracious and forgiving. You should be merciful and gracious and forgiving. He is slow to anger. You should be slow to anger. Serve him. Worship him. Not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. Not with your lips, but with your heart. Keep his commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And they're not burdensome. Why? I gave you a new heart. Skip all that. Now, from this point to today, from this point in history to today, God has given us centuries of his dealings with the nation of Israel. How well did they do? And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? How did they do with these requirements? And in the infamous words of John Boy and Billy, not too good. Not too good. Remember how, just right after the Ten Commandments, the, the Israel sins with the golden calf. Remember how Moses comes down and in anger he just smashes the tablets, pleads for pardon and gets it and God writes some new tablets and they renew the covenant imagine how many times in the history of Israel Moses would have had to come down that mountain crack the tablets go and get some more how many times it just you see this on replay like and before he even gets to the top of the mountain you're having to break some more tablets and rewrite some more tablets do you see there's a problem what's the problem we need a better covenant Why? Because the covenant is so bad? No, because we are. Because we're so bad. This is what God says. We need a better covenant. One that would provide the power to obey from the heart and total forgiveness when we don't. And here's the good news. We got one. We have a better covenant. The central command in this paragraph it addresses the real problem. We need a new heart. But here's the problem with the problem. Only God can circumcise your heart. Here's the answer. How do I circumcise my heart? You can't. You can't. And you can't change your heart, quite frankly, because you don't want to. You don't have the will to. Why? Because you love your sin. This is what Jesus says. You love the darkness. You won't come to the light because you love the darkness. It doesn't matter what your eyes see, like them. It doesn't matter what your ears hear, like them. Your heart will never change unless God acts in a creative or recreative fiat. You know, you want to know the most exciting part of the book of Deuteronomy for me? It's how this heart problem is addressed so clearly and so early in Scripture. But before Israel's even a nation in the promised land, before they've even had a chance to exile themselves by breaking this covenant, before Ezekiel even promises a new heart, before Jeremiah even promises a new covenant, it's right here in Deuteronomy, which proves something. Now I want you to see this proves the truth of Scripture. It proves that regeneration and faith is not some New Testament invention by some rebellious messianic band of apostles. It's been here all along. It's been the plan all along because it's been the need all along. What did Adam do wrong? He didn't believe God. Why did God destroy the world in the days of Noah? Because of wicked hearts that needed to be changed. Now I want you to do one thing for me. Turn in Deuteronomy to chapter 29. And I want you to look at the problem one more time. 29 verse 2. Because I just want you to see it. 
Deuteronomy 29.2, here's Moses again gathering up Israel. He summoned all of Israel and said to them, You have seen, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs. Remember all the signs that the Jews saw in the days of Jesus? All the signs and great wonders that you saw, verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. If you want a heart to believe, if you want a heart to fear God, if you want a heart to love him and walk in all his ways, where is it going to come from? It comes from the Lord. Verse 4. That's the problem. Only God can circumcise your heart. But now flip the page to, to chapter 30. Because here's the promise. God promises before they even enter the land. He promises a couple things. He promises that their sin is going to cause them to be exiled as a nation. But despite that, in mercy, yet once again, God's going to gather them up and bring them into the promised land just like he promised. But this time he's going to make them even more numerous and more prosperous than they can imagine. And guess what? The terms are going to be different this time because of verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. God's going to circumcise the people of God. He's going to circumcise their heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you may live. See with your eyes right there new covenant promises before new covenant promises. Boy, in, in chapter 5, God said, oh that, they, oh, that they would have such a heart to fear me like this always. And in chapter 30, he goes, they will. I will do it. And centuries later, centuries later, as the nation of Israel is finally being exiled from the land because of their unrelenting covenant-breaking sin, God's prophets begin to reveal a new covenant, not like the one that their fathers broke, but one that would offer total forgiveness and one that would provide a brand new heart. A heart to fear God and walk in all His ways. And then one day, in the fullness of time, a baby was born in Bethlehem. And they, they called His name Yeshua, Jesus. Why? Because he, Yahweh in the flesh, would save his people from their sin. And his perfect nature and his sinless life fulfilled all those old covenant requirements. And then his bloody death and resurrection actually paid the price for the new covenant. Which part of it? All of it. All to fulfill the very meaning of his name and manifest God's love in saving his people from his sin. And now, church, what does the Lord your God require of you? Love the God who loved you first. Fear your Father in heaven who forgives sinners. Love the Savior who loved you and died in your place. Walk in his ways the rest of your days with reverent, joyful obedience from the heart. And if you feel like you're lacking this circumcised heart, ask him for it. Stop being stubborn. Just ask him for it. The covenant sacrifice himself says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Praise be. To Yahweh, our God. Let's pray. God, we praise you. You have done it all. 
and you keep doing it all, Lord. We, we will have never come to you. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Your love and your grace is worthy to be feared. You're a good God. You truly are merciful and gracious and slow to anger in all these things you reveal. You have forgiven your people by the blood of your son and we give you praise. God, I plead with you not to allow, not allow one heart here to be unaffected. And I can't do it. Can't even change my own heart. Do this work, Lord. Revive the hearts of your people. Save sinners for the glory of your name. Amen.